Sam. Jimmy. Hannah. <laughs> um, can we go back in time to that time we all went bike riding together? Is the seat too high? Where should? Oh, yeah. so. so maybe just to start, can you like, like, what's your relationship with bikes? I will say, yeah. if you're serious about biking, you get a lot of fun accessories. Is it like you want history, history. So I want to know if if you were to submit a, an application to a bike gang. What would it say on it? Leaving this um, parking lot right now. Uh, Sam stopping for a stop sign like a sucker. I I only ever rode a bike when I was a kid with my cousins uh, on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which makes me sound like a real jerk. (laughs) But it was just because it was super safe. So I was always like a coddled biker. I I have an ongoing relationship right now with one bike. Monogamous bike owner. How long have you been together? Hey, Hannah. Oh, this is fun. Yeah, right? I miss bike riding. I grew up in an urban area. I rode a bike everywhere until I was about 16, 15, when I, could, when I got my license. And then I never touched a bike again, essentially. Yeah, because bikes are for people who don't have cars. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Then I started to detox from driving maybe five years ago. Um, and then I saw, like, these people in, like, skinny jeans and like bike helmets with mustaches and, and mustaches pomade in their hair exactly and they were they were biking everywhere i'm like oh that kind of like i'm i'm i think i feel like i'm ready to um get back into the bike gang sam can i drift over into the oncoming traffic lane and we should mention right here at the top that i was having hannah and jimmy ride in a very particular style vehicular cycling Stopping at stop signs, red lights, hand signals whenever you turn, and most importantly, riding as close as you can to the middle of your lane so cars can't pass without crossing the double yellow line. Yeah, like you bike exactly like a car behaves, basically. Wait, so you can never break the rules of the road? Like, ever? You That was really a sticking point for you. It's <laughs> the best part about biking. <laughs> Breaking the law, Jimmy. I think the only thing I felt when we were out there was that I didn't trust the vehicle pilots. I actually feel worse because the cars are passing us. It's like the car's coming up behind you. Yeah. Yeah. Which made me want to go slower. (laughs) I feel fine. I've got health insurance. It's okay. So we went to the school. We encountered a very aggressively driving... Yo, cops wilding out! um, Non-understanding the rules of the road. Passing us up! um, Police officer who set a great example for um, other... Uh, motor vehicleists. He passed very, very quickly. He did. Yeah. Jimmy attempted a citizen's arrest, but the bikes were considerably slower <laughs> than the cop car. What's your badge number? He got away. Cops out here making cyclists unsafe. And then we and then we headed uh, we went to City Hall. Thing number two. Thing number two. Which I actually thought was kind of like the chillest part of the ride. We got some honking. Mission accomplished. And then we were going to the grocery store. We were going to get some snacks, which meant that we had to confront... Loudon Road. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Alright, we are turning <laughs> off Main Street onto Loudon Road right now. A lot of traffic. I know some of the city engineers, and they refer to Loudon Road as the funnel of death. <laughs> I mean, there's, what, there's countless intersections, there's an on and off ramp for a highway. It turns into two lanes into four lanes. Into like six. Into six yeah. lanes. and All... then one lane like disappears suddenly. You it's know? the worst. It's, it's the funnel of death. It's awful. Feel like you got this? Oh my god, I really don't know. I, I uh, you've done this, Sam? Yeah, yeah. Oh, More like, than you're once. Just like a car. 
You're not just like a car. <laughs> a car weighs two tons. I remember having this dread feeling in my stomach, thinking like, oh God, Jimmy's actually going to convince Sam, and then I'll be outnumbered, and then I'll have to do it because this is my job. I was terrified. It's too dangerous. But look at that car made it. <laughs> it's like a doom buggy. I feel like we, we really, I really progressed today. So I guess no snacks. Ah. Oh, we do love snacks here. <laughs> All right, let's ride home. Let's ride home. On Main Street. Okay. And so what if I told you that one of the country's most prominent cycling advocates throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s believes that your fear of riding on Loudoun Road is making cyclists everywhere less safe, and not only that, it's just plain wrong. I'm wrong for not wanting to confront a busy road that turns directly onto the highway. I'm wrong? Like, what kind of wrong am I? Like he thinks you're ignorant and you're giving up your rights to the road. What I would say to that is that I am not wrong. Perhaps the system was set up in such a way that the roads are not made safe enough for cyclists, given our whole way that we're educated about driving and all of that, and or whatever. Jimmy, doesn't this sound like somebody who's wrong? <gasps> <laughs> Today on Outside In, a story about why it has taken so long for our cities to start to develop bike infrastructure. A lot of it has to do with one man, John Forrester, a man whose ideas were incredibly pervasive and who informed a whole generation of cyclists who you've probably seen, people riding fearlessly out in the middle of traffic pretending like they're a car. It was how I personally was taught, and its proponents say it's the fastest, best, safest way to ride. But many people, maybe even most people, find it absolutely terrifying. And if it's their only option, they will never ride a bike. But the man who popularized this strategy, he is fine with that. In fact, if you're not willing to ride in traffic, he's not sure you should be riding a bike at all. Okay, so I want to introduce you guys to a gentleman. Uh, he's getting on in years. His name is John Forrester. I'm a fourth-generation cyclist. I hear tell that my great-grandmother rode a bicycle. So you can see it goes back a long way with me. John was born in London. He moved to Berkeley, California. He was an industrial engineer, but also, to a certain extent, was just the child of privilege. Look, my father wrote Hornblower and the African Queen, books like that. Um, so Hornblower, you, had you guys heard of Hornblower? No. I had never heard of it, no. Apparently it's a big deal. Horatio Hornblower, sort of like Master and Commander. Uh, and then the African Queen was turned into a movie later with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. That I'm familiar with. There you go. Yeah. And I have a part share in the royalties that come in off them. And from a very young age, John Forrester could ride fast. The house my mother had rented was right at the top of the Berkeley Hills. So down I went to school every day, going as fast as the cars. But as he got older, he just got more and more into biking. He started doing really long rides. I've ridden 
all the California coast, almost all of it. Um, he did races. I used to be able to do a 25-mile time trial, an average speed of about 22, 23 miles an hour. So fast forward to the 1970s. And then. John's in his 40s. He's living in Palo Alto. In my neighborhood. And he learns that there's this ordinance that's been passed. They decided to turn the sidewalks into what they term bike lanes. That's going to require all cyclists to ride their bikes on the sidewalks. They had it all wrong. Basically, it's a bald-faced attempt to kick bikers off the road. And John decides to kick up a stink. You don't do this. You fight it. He rides in the road anyway, and when a police officer pulls him over, he says, No, I won't. I'm not going to obey you. What are you going to do about it? He said, Okay, I'm going to give you a ticket. I said, That's fine. We'll go to court. And while he's fighting this ticket, the city gets all sorts of negative feedback and decides going to overturn the ordinance and let cyclists back into the road. They knew that they, <laughs> that they were doing something very foolish. But this confrontation kicked off a lifetime of activism for John Forrester. Because what do you do when you discover that there's some law that you don't like that's been passed? I mean, you ask yourself, how did this happen? He starts paying attention to state transportation committees. This committee was set up to revise and make safe the traffic laws for California. And he realizes that there are no cyclists on these committees. I went to their second meeting and suggested, you know, you really need some cyclists on this. And they're making rules from the perspective of drivers and drivers alone. Um, and he starts rallying together cyclists to oppose these rules. Got myself a mimeograph machine, informed California cyclists, everyone I knew. And we had a great big war. Huh? Yes. And John says that he's doing battle against this big, shadowy, multi-tentacled beast called motordom. That was the title of a political-type publication produced by the Automobile Association of New York State. And you've adopted it as a term for, for uh, car drivers and their advocates? Yes, but you see, it has to include, among other things... The highway patrol. Car drivers, the government, automobile makers. And I think actually to a certain extent this is true, right? Like like when you fight against motoring interest in the United States, it is a fierce fight. What is this guy fighting about? So there were two rules that he was really worked up about. There's this thing called the mandatory side path rule, which says that if there's a bike path, you have to use it. You can't be in the road. And then there's the what he calls the far to the right law, which says that if you're a bike, you have to stay far to the right so cars can get by you. Okay, I can maybe understand the far to the right thing. Well, like, why is he so mad about side paths? Well, okay, so I'm reminded of this one bike path that's uh, in the town that my wife grew up in, and it's out on a quiet road that's full of all these lake houses for Massachusetts people. Uh, and the design of the bike path is, like, it's the worst. There's there's gravel in between the road and, and the path, and whenever it rains, all the gravel just washes down onto the path, so it's full of these razor-sharp rocks, <laughs> which would just destroy your tires if you if you hit them. And so I've never used it. And I can imagine, like, if a cop ever pulled me over and tried to give me a ticket for not using the bike path, I would be totally outraged. And I think that that's where he's coming from, is that there's this idea that he was being shunted off onto inferior infrastructure. I feel like I agree insofar as you shouldn't prevent a cyclist who is comfortable on the road, knows the rules of the road, from biking on the road. I agree with that. 
I just feel like there are some people who don't feel safe riding in the roads, people who might need to like use a bike to get to work, who are only going to ride if there's a bike lane. Right. And this is what has made John so controversial, because when he says that it's motordom versus cyclists, what he means are real cyclists, quote unquote, because in his mind, there are two types of riders. Cyclist inferiority cycling, subservient to motorists, cringing along the edge of the road, frightened of being hit from behind. And you had another bunch of cyclists, enthusiastic cyclists, and more men than women in cycling clubs who obeyed the rules of the road instead. So you had these two streams going all along. Do you notice there's like a little bit of verbal jujitsu in there? There's like two strains of cyclists. One are like, the, you know, cringing gutter huggers. Yeah. And then there are the other cyclists who obey the rules of the road. Yeah. Suggesting that the first group don't. Right. Yeah. Right. And the cyclist inferiority cyclists, they are, they're asking for side paths because they've been tricked by car drivers into being afraid of cars. Motordom doesn't have to say anything anymore because the bicycle activists, environmentalists and whomever you like, anti-motoring people, they want side paths because that's what the ignorant people want. And when I say ignorant, I mean it. The people who don't understand. So that is John Forrester. Mm. Aside from being someone who rides a bike, what are his credentials? Well, he was an industrial engineer. Okay. For a firm that made materials equipment for aerospace work. Shrink tubing. You know what shrink tubing is? Well, I should point out that he designed like a shoe. He designed like plastics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but for real, how how influential can one person be? Well, in two ways. For starters, he wrote this book called Effective Cycling, printed by MIT, which for decades was the go-to handbook for cycling safety classes. And he actually, this is funny, I learned how to ride a bike in the road as a Boy Scout. I took the Cycling Merit Badge. Turns out he actually directly contributed to writing the Cycling Merit Badge guidelines. Yes. <laughs> so I like learned his school of riding. Mm-hmm. And if you ever do take a bike safety class anywhere, you're probably learning, at least in part, how to ride like a vehicular cyclist. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to like a safe class. That's reasonable. Yeah. And like this is this is one of John's big arguments is that if more people were learning how to do this, more cyclists would be out on the road. Cycling would be seen as more legitimate. Cars would be more used to dealing with them uh, and and we'd all be safer. Right. But at the same time, he's also actively working against building up any kind of infrastructure for cyclists. Right. Right. And so this is the second and more problematic way that John was super influential, biking infrastructure. He was one of a very few cyclists who knew how the levers of power operated in the 70s and 80s. And so in 1974, there's this organization called AASHTO, stands for the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. There's some terrible acronyms out there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is truly... So Ashto put out a guide to building bicycle facilities in 1974. They recommended building bike paths, which, of course, John Forster opposed. And so when the rules were rewritten in 1981, he swamped them with comments and succeeded in getting the bike language reversed. So that now it said, don't build separate bike lanes. They are unsafe. They are unsafe. And this is based on, this is one of my favorite parts, John Forster conducted a study 
where he got on his bike and went out onto a sidewalk and rode his bike on the sidewalk as fast as he could, so like 20, 25 miles an hour on the sidewalk, and then counted how many times he had a conflict. So like how many times he almost hit somebody walking their dog or like a car didn't see him on the sidewalk and like cut him off. Uh, and, and, you know, and so his study proved... Air quote, air quote. <laughs> that, that side paths were unsafe. But that's not the same thing as a bike lane. A sidewalk is not a bike lane. A sidewalk is pedestrian infrastructure. And if they are saying, we are going to create bike infrastructure, different modes of transportation. And yet this was the kind of science that the ASHTO guidelines were based on. Is this still in play anywhere? Is this still... The language was just taken out of the most recent guide that was written in 2012. Wow. This might sound very abstract. We're talking about guidelines in a book somewhere on a shelf. But this stuff really mattered. The Ashtod guidelines dictated what got built. Simply because the states, the engineers in the states who were building the facilities, followed the Ashto guidelines. And they didn't dare deviate from the Ashto guidelines. So when you track the Ashto guidelines back for bicycle facilities and you realize they were written by men sitting around a table deciding what worked for them as vehicular bicyclists, and then that would go to the states and the states would build what those men sitting around a table decided was working for them, what we ended up with was decades of bicycle facilities that were essentially designed by John Forrester because he wrote the first Ashto guidelines. So that's Ann Lusk, who's a researcher at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. What has it done in terms of the way stuff is designed? Like, what would Loudon Road look like if those guidelines had been different? The funnel of death. <laughs> would it still be a funnel of death? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like, it's a counterfactual. It's hard to, hard to know. But the early bike paths that were recommended in that first guide were separated from traffic, either by parked cars or by a curb. And certainly that's what's getting built right now in cities that are finally getting serious about encouraging more people to ride bikes, separate protected bike lanes. And is that working? Well, so every study that I've seen of this has shown that in places that have built bike lanes over the last 10 or 15 years, more people have started to ride for transportation and the accident rate has fallen. And that could have been the case 40 years ago, right? Yeah. If we, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But really, this is just part of how John Forrester managed to dominate the conversation about bike infrastructure. And the other part is, frankly, downright despicable. They would attack me and heckle me publicly. We'll hear about that after a break. So Ann Lusk who now has her Ph.D. and is a researcher at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She first got into transportation because in 1981, she built the first recreational multi-use path in the United States. It was in Stowe, Vermont. From the village up to the mountain. It sort of winds along and there are like swimming holes along the way. Rhythm, crescendo, and climax. Variety on a bike path. It's a little salacious. <laughs> it's, a, it's a music term. It's from classical music. Right. And she was like... She was not a transportation engineer. I started as a local activist. I had a master's, but that was for historic preservation. And so she was just someone who was in Stowe, who knew how to get stuff done, and so she got this job. And it sort of launched her on this journey. So then I became a professional lecturer and lectured in the United States and Canada and Europe about how to build bicycle paths. And she found herself uh, in Montreal 
at a symposium for transportation people. And she was giving a presentation uh, on a panel with John Forrester. John Forrester spoke to me and he said that he wanted to speak second and have me speak first. Uh, I've seen what you want to talk about and I want to switch this around because she was going uh, second and he was going first. He said, I want, the, I want to be able to talk after you. And I said, yes, but we're on the program. Um, to have you speak first and I speak second. So let's just stick with the program. So John started off not being happy. While he was speaking, I knew that I was in trouble because I could see the people in the front row were nodding at everything John said, as if he was a disciple. And, and what kind of things was he talking about? Do you remember? A typical John Forrester policies that he knew what was right, that everybody should operate their bicycle as a vehicle in the road, and that there should be no separate paths alongside, no bike lanes, even painted bike lanes. And listens to him talk, and then she gets up with her slides, and they're all about these recreational paths that she builds. Slides that were showing children biking, uh, children without shoes on, without helmets. They would gasp. <laughs> they would gasp when I would show slides of children um, all gathered together in their bathing suits on their bicycles. So this was like a really hostile room, and she, she like didn't realize what she had stumbled her way into. But it's, this is John Forrester's acolytes. These are the people who have been drinking uh, you know, the same water that he's been drinking his whole life. And she says that as she was doing this, she couldn't see John from where she was sitting. But, she, you know, I got the sense that she kind of suspected that he was, like, mugging as she would show photos, like, rolling his eyes and sort of leading the crowd and how they should be responding to the stuff that she was showing. And I realized that I was being heckled, that I was being booed. The heckling was mean. And it was, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we know better than you do. And you can understand, it, it put me in such an awkward position because I hadn't anticipated that much difficulty in the room. And I, I thought I was going to cry. And this is the experience that actually drove Anne to get her PhD so that the folks in that room wouldn't be able to talk down to her anymore. And in speaking to about a half dozen activists and engineers for this story, and also reading the comments at the bottom of stories that are critical of John Forrester, this is what I heard and saw. He has an incredibly confrontational style. I don't see him, like, winning a lot of friends that way. (laughs) But maybe arguing for a bill or something that could, I mean, like strong-arming somebody else out of the way basically works. Dominating a comment section. Works well on the internet. Works well. (laughs) John Forrester, for a long time, was able to dominate the conversation just by sheer volume. But now there are new voices that are part of this conversation. I mostly grew up in Okinawa, Japan, and our bike was our lifeline. Um, It's how we got around. It's how we got to school. It's how we um, went off base and and hung out with our friends. And I had a mountain bike and I had a like trick BMX bike. Like I had multiple bikes and I I loved biking. Okay, so this is Tamika Butler. 
She's now the head of a land trust in L.A., but previously she was the executive director of the L.A. County Bicycle Coalition. I I moved to L.A. about six years ago uh, for a girl, and it it luckily worked out. (laughs) We're now married. And she was like you, Jimmy. She rode her bike as a kid, but then didn't touch it again until she was an adult. And she says she got back into it because after moving to L.A., she was finding that she was driving everywhere and was kind of gaining weight. My doctor says I'm young and I'm black and I'm pre-diabetic and I got to work out. And she said, you should buy a bike. And so Tamika got back into biking with this friend who convinced her to train for a 600-mile charity ride. And this friend starts by showing her where they can ride. We went to all these different neighborhoods um, and parts of L.A., and that's when I really started to notice what neighborhoods I would be in when I'd be um, riding in a bike lane and what neighborhoods I'd be in where there wasn't a bike lane at all or what neighborhoods I would be in where we would actually feel safer getting on the sidewalk. And then all of a sudden, the sidewalk would end and it would turn into a, a freeway entrance. But I was thinking about this, like, when with Forrester. I was like, when I was a kid and I would take my bike to school, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to ride in the middle of the street. In a city? Yeah. I'm not riding my bike in the in Milwaukee. No way. So did you ride on the sidewalk? I, yeah, I'd ride on the sidewalk. Or if I was like a side street, then I'd be like, yeah, I'm in the street now, you know. But if there was traffic, no way. You know that in a lot of places that's against the law? Yeah. And in Chicago, the Chicago Tribune did an investigation of this where they found that police gave out cycling citations in black and Latino neighborhoods at twice the rate they did in white neighborhoods. And it's not just that these communities are opened up to getting harassed by the police just for riding their bike in a way that makes them feel safe. These communities are actually often less safe places to ride a bike. There's there's a study that shows that black and Latino cyclists are like 25 to 30 percent more likely to get killed while cycling. So like black and Latino people have more of a reason to be afraid of cycling, perhaps, or to need like extra provisions for cycling that perhaps John Forrester has never had to worry about. This is what Tamika is saying. Assuming that everyone can just ride like they're a car ignores the fact that some roads are just more dangerous. You know, who is this going to disproportionately impact? And because I often think about equity and policing and sometimes um, transportation folks don't, a lot of folks thought I was off base. And it was actually um, a white guy who first told me this when I when I first started my job at the Bike Coalition said, one of the things you're going to run into is that there's a lot of guys just like me who have never faced any sort of oppression or discrimination in our lives until we've been on a bike. And so when someone tells us we have to be in a bike lane or we have to wear extra equipment or that if we get hit, it's our fault, not their fault. Like we we've never experienced that. So when when that happens to us for the first time and when we feel like we're being blamed, even though oftentimes we're the victim, um, this feels like a a social justice issue to us. So you're really going to struggle talking about social justice because that's what it's going to mean to that group of people. I just want to see if I can wrap this all up because what I think I find fascinating about this is that there are all these great things about cycling as a mode of transit, right? It's, like, good for your health, it's good for the environment, it reduces traffic. So lots of cities do want more people to have the ability to do this. And John Forster, in the early days, was primarily motivated by this perceived affront on his rights 
as a minority, like his right as a cyclist to have access to cycling. So it's ironic that he's unable to see that his own intransigence on this protected bike lane question is actually like tantamount to denying this whole other population of people, people who are intimidated by riding in traffic, that same right. Preach. Preach. But John is really just like totally unfazed by all of this. It's not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Look, America's got itself into a terrible tangle. What they aim to do cannot be done. They cannot get people out on the road safely who do not know how to obey the rules of the road. And they try and frighten off the people who do know how to operate safely. That is all done by motordom. And when I interviewed John, he was insistent that vehicular cycling works just the same on any road at any speed. The rules of the road are set up to accommodate both faster and slower traffic on the same roadway. But do you think it's possible that drivers of cars treat cyclists differently who can maintain a certain speed? So so I just so you know, I I ride my bike to work every day and I also do race as well and I'm I'm rather fast. In fact, I think I'm probably faster than you were. But there are days where I do things like go and get groceries on my bike and I have a, a, a bike that's loaded with, you know, 30 pounds of milk and eggs and there's a hill coming out of the area where the grocery stores are. And when I am only able to lumber up that hill at 10 miles an hour, I'm, I'm pretty hesitant to jump out into the middle of the lane because I think the cars would be pretty uh pretty outraged to find me there going at that speed but i'm very comfortable taking the lane at 25 if you if you choose if you choose to bow down to society's pressure for fast motoring you're a damn poor cyclist in my mind how about that huh I honestly don't know if he ever could be convinced. I mean, he has had experiences that might have scared me off the road and made it so that I would never have gotten on my bike again. And they just don't seem to have phased him. Listen to this. When I lived in Fullerton, Southern California, once I was riding, yeah, it was a two-lane connecting road going from the subdivision where I lived to uh, a shopping center. And there I was, riding along, and I heard behind me a screech of tires. Oh, I thought, this is it. Next thing I heard was, ha, 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 oh, ha, 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 bunch of teenage kids laughing at me. That's the only time anything like that has ever happened. So you don't think that'd be enough to, to terrify, you know, a less certain individual to never ride a bike again? I am not going to be terrified by militant motorists who insist on motoring supremacy. I am against cyclist inferiority. I am equally against the other side of that coin, motorist supremacy. We should all be equal drivers. But do you hear what I'm saying? That if someone else were to have an experience like the one you just described, someone who is, in fact, more fearful... You don't think that that would be enough to make them say, I'm never riding a bike again? Well, 
If that's the way it is, that's the way it is. I think John sees himself as a soldier in a war. And on one side, there are people like him who are in favor of riding in the road and the right to ride in the road. And on the other side, there's everyone else. I've kept vehicular cycling, in other words, obeying the rules of the road, alive when otherwise it would have been killed. Are you proud of that? Of course I am. I look on myself as being one of those many, but only a small minority of the world, who carry on the proper science of cycling transportation. But the cycling advocacy community has turned the corner. They have shifted away from John Forrester. And this is actually where I learned about this story. I just biked over here, so I, uh, I'm i still kind of getting... Yeah, I'm still cold. It's quite cold here for Texas, I will say. I know you're in the Northeast. This is Tara Goddard. She's an assistant professor of urban planning at Texas A&M University. Uh, and it was actually her tweets about John Forrester that alerted me to this whole story. I sat down at midnight, as one does to tweet about my feelings about the uh, bicycling conference that happened. It's the International Cycling Safety Conference is the official name. And it was the first time that it had ever been held in America. But then she's noticing the conference isn't really going the way you would expect in a conference like this. Two of the three plenaries basically were, and I hate to use the word calling him out, because they were not unfair. They were not making personal attacks for the most part. Um, But they were directly, it wasn't just like, hey, we're attacking this approach, but it's very much this person. She says the conference made it clear that at this point, when it comes to bike advocates, John Forrester had very few people left on his side. It was really just kind of felt like 300 to 1. And then so that late night tweet storm was me kind of wrestling with that, but ending on a sense of relief and hope because the profession is shifting this way. And so, you know, I came away with a lot of hope, but still kind of feeling a little bit sad and uncomfortable with how it all went down. Bike planners have largely left his opinions behind. I mean, at least he started a conversation about the fact that our transportation planning is dominated by cars and drivers. He drew attention to that. Yeah. Yeah, and... And I think for me, this story was interesting because I was born right at this fault line. Like, if I had been born 30 years earlier, I probably would have been part of this whole generation of fit white male forester disciples who swallowed his arguments hook, line, and sinker. But now I think I think it's hard to find people who ride for transportation who really believe that bike lanes are a bad idea. So I think I'm just happy that we've reached a moment where one voice can't just shut all the other ones down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also very happy that you were you weren't born 30 years earlier <laughs> and you are not John Forrester. Work would be unpleasant. Work would be unpleasant. Oh man. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. 
A big thanks to Bill Schulteis, Jeff Rosenblum, and Carrie Watkins for help wading through the Wild West of transportation planning acronyms and cycling safety literature. And on that note, if you are interested in diving deeper into something we did an episode on, we have a website for that, outsideinradio.org. For most of our stories, we do a whole separate web post that has photos, links to more information, a general cornucopia of bonus stuff to check out. Music in this episode is by Komiku, Jason Leonard, Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, and Ari De Niro. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 